Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Canada's aging population hit a major milestone in 2017, where for the first time in our country's history, the number of seniors exceeded the number of school-aged children. And it is projected that by 2041, seniors will comprise roughly one quarter of the country's population. This significant demographic shift presents tremendous challenges to our country's health care and social services infrastructure. But it also exposes the challenges of designing our cities and future communities to properly serve our aging population. To talk about city planning for an aging society, I'm so very fortunate to be joined by Gil Penalosa, founder and chair of 880 Cities and president of Gil Penalosa and Associates. Gil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So to prepare for this interview, I I checked out your 880 Cities website. And one of the things that impressed me is the countless number of presentations you've delivered over the years to audiences big and small in cities around the world. And one of your messages that stuck with me is where you say that we should stop building cities for a 30-year-old, and instead we should design cities for an 8-year-old as well as an 80-year-old. So perhaps you can elaborate on that. Well, I think that somehow... We live in such a, an ageist society uh, that we tend to think that living longer is something that that is negative. I think that one of the things we need to fight is against ageism, which is so stupid because it, it, being ageist is like is prejudiced against people because of their age, and when it's prejudiced against people because they are older, it's prejudiced against our parents, our grandparents, it's prejudiced against our own future selves. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, and I think that this is something wonderful that can happen. For example. Human beings, we've been around for around 200,000 years. Up until 200 years ago, which is nothing, from 200,000 up to 200, the life expectancy was very, very low. We didn't have any country in the world, none that had a life expectancy above 45. In only 200 years, now we have a life expectancy where no country is below 45, not even the poorest countries in Africa. This, this has been an amazing transformation. On the one hand, a lot fewer children are dying before the age of five, but also older people are living much longer, and people are healthier and happier, and they have knowledge, and they have experience, and... But somehow we seem surprised. I have worked in over 350 different cities all over the world in every continent. Uh, And in at least half of them, I've worked directly with the mayors. And they always said, Gil, we have a problem. I said, yeah, what problem? He said, oh, we have too many old people. (laughs) And I said, you know, that first is not a problem. Uh, And second is not you. It's everybody. It's not that we have too many old people. It's just that we are living much longer. That's why it seems like we would have many more people. And when you ask me about the cities, it's just that, for example, every day, the other day, everybody was very um, 
conscious, concerned about two planes that fell off and everybody died. Well, every single day, the equivalent of five of those planes full of people crashing and everybody dying is how many people walking are hit by people driving cars and killing them. It doesn't make any sense. It's Imagine there was a plane over Australia, another one over Russia, over the U.S., over Canada, over Brazil. They crash and everybody dies. Five today, five tomorrow, five the next day. It would be a huge crisis. But sincere people walking, it seems like no one really cared. Uh, so clearly it's cities and most of the people that are being killed are children and are older adults. Uh, in the last 80 years, it seems like we've been building cities thinking more on car mobility than on people's happiness. And that's when I'm saying that we are building cities for uh, thinking on the 30-year-old and athletic and not on the children and the older adults. By the way, when I say 880 cities, it's not 8 to 80. It's 8 and 80 as an indicator species. Because if whatever we do is safe for an 8-year-old and is safe for an 80-year-old, it's going to be safe for everybody. It's not that it's not going to, if it's good for the 80, it's not going to be good for the 30. No, it's also good for the 30 and for the 5 and for the 90 and for the 100. But it's, it's like an indicator species. So, so those are the kind of things that we should do. The sidewalk, the crosswalk, the park, the libraries, the schools, everything that we do in our cities. So that's so you're saying that uh, I guess the approach that is typically taken is that we we're thinking for an able-bodied 30 year old, but we're not tend we tend not to think about the eight year old and the and the 80 year old uh, when we're designing our cities, and that we should be doing more of that. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, okay. on, on, on everything we do. For example, sometimes we see people go out, go to city council and fight, and they get a bike lane. And all they do is they paint a line. I said, you know, would you send your 80-year-old there? Oh, no, no. Would you send your 80-year-old parent there? Oh, no. no. Okay, do, if it's not safe for an 8 and it's not safe for an 80, don't even call it a bikeway. It's nothing. It's just a little bit of paint on, on, on the pavement. Everything that we do in the cities must be safe for everybody. It's totally unconceivable that in a city like Toronto, a person driving hits a person walking every three and a half hours, and a person cycling every seven and a half hours. And this doesn't seem to be a major crisis or a major concern. When this, the, the, I mean, these numbers, and it's not just in Toronto, in all, of the, in all the other areas. The other thing is this, we, we are facing what should be a huge sense of urgency. Around the world, half of the homes that will be around within the lifetime of our children, which is nothing, half of the, the, the lifetime, half of the homes that will be in the world within the lifetime of our children have not been built yet. Mm-hmm. Have not. What a magnificent opportunity. Today we have about 3.5 billion people living in cities. In 40 years, we're going to have 7 billion people living in cities. So how are we going to do that? Unfortunately, if that is going to happen in the next 40 years, sometimes we think, okay, what have we done in the last 40? Because if what we've been doing is good, okay, let's just do more of the same. Unfortunately, in most places around the world, what we've been doing in the last 40 years from the point of view of city building it's horrible. It's really mediocre. It's not safe for the 8 or for the 80-year-old. It's not good for the environment. It's not good for public health. It's not good for economic development. It's almost not good for anything. So we need to do things radically different. 
all of the big cities in Canada, and big cities, I mean cities of 300, 400,000 or, or, or bigger, are going to increase the population by about 50% in the next 30 years. Very, very, very fast. And we're still doing things the same when we know that that is not working. So, so, so we, so I, I don't really know why are we not having that sense of urgency that that we are doing those cities. We're doing, for example, a lot of suburbs where an eight-year-old or an eighty-year-old. We know we have an aging population, and however, an older adult, an old older adult, or a child they become almost a slave to a person with a car just to go out for an ice cream because there is not a place to, to go for an ice cream within walking distance. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So we, we could really, we have a magnificent opportunity, but not only an opportunity, a huge responsibility because whatever we do or don't do is where people are going to live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Because the, fortunately, from the point of view of world population, the growth is slowing very, very fast. And it's almost at zero now. But since there's many more children and youth, it's going to continue to grow for another 30 or 40 years. But then the world population is going to stabilize. So, so, so this is something that has never happened before and probably will never happen again, that we are going to increase by 3.5 billion people living in cities, but specifically in Canada. All, just, just to give the listeners a proportion, in New York, Michael Bloomberg said, we're going to grow by 1 million people. If we don't do something, we're going to collapse. And that was his sense of urgency and got everything moving in mobility, in public health, in environment, in climate change, around the fact that they were going to grow by 1 million. Well, New York has 8 million people, and they're going to grow by 1 million in the next 40 years. The extended GTA from Oshawa to Niagara, we have the same 8 million people, except we're not going to grow by 1. We're going to grow by 4. So we're going to grow four times more than New York, and we're going to do it in 30 years, not in 40. But nevertheless, there doesn't seem to be a sense of urgency from our leaders at the city level, at the provincial level, at the federal level. Uh, they want to study and study and study and do more studies. No, no, no. We, we, we don't have too much time to think. We, we, we need to act. When we blink, there's a new neighborhood. So, so, so we urgently need to act. So tell me about a little bit about the work that you do globally. I mean, you are traveling all over the world, um, providing advice to cities. Is the approach that you give cities and, and um, other jurisdictions, uh, larger jurisdictions, is your approach similar to um, uh, uh, no matter where you go? Oh, no. It's, it's, it's both. It's similar in the sense that people are the same everywhere. Human beings are pretty much between 160 and 2 meters and 2 eyes and 2 ears. And, <laughs> right. and, and they're very similar. But right. Human beings are very social. People like to be with other people uh, almost everywhere. Uh, so there, there are many similar behaviors, but of course there are some different cultures. So people might, might, might want to have also different weather, but, but at the end of the day, I, I would say that most people are, are very similar, but of course we need to do things differently. If, uh, last month I was working in Alaska and Alaska, they have very long winters and very dark days for, a, for, for a long part of the year. So it's something that we need to advise that is very different 
if last week I was in Spain in uh, Victoria Gasteiz and San Sebastian and they are small cities of 300,000 people and uh, with magnificent weather year round so so it so it is it, it is different but but it, but in many it, many of the issues are very similar for example public transit everybody needs public transit everybody whether you are a city of 10,000 people or 10 million, you need public transit. In the city of 10,000, maybe you need two or three buses. In the city of 1 million, maybe you need a, a bus rapid transit or a light rail. In the city of 10 million, maybe you need a subway. But in all of them, you're going to need public transit. Sometimes people think that walking and cycling is, is a joke or is a frivolity. The reality is that walking and cycling is the only individual mode of mobility for most people. Is the only individual mode of mobility for every child and youth. If you're under 16, you might be the son or the daughter of the wealthiest person in Canada. If you're under 16, your only individual mode of mobility is to walk or to bike. So having safe and enjoyable walking and cycling should be almost like a human right. Unless people think that only those that have the money and the age and the desire to have a car have a right to individual mobility. So so in many things, so, so we need to adapt the solutions but but many of the concerns issues are loneliness we people are very lonely now that's a huge public health program pro, pro, problem is loneliness loneliness is is a huge problem that is creating anxiety and depression and heart attacks and dementia people that are lonely are three times more likely to have dementia than people that are that are have others to, to socialize with. Uh, people also live shorter, have a higher probability of early death. And so, and people are lonely in the communities of 5,000 people or 50,000 or 5 million people. So it, 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 maybe we, we need to tackle it in, in different ways, but, but some of those symptoms end up being very similar. So you were saying earlier that, you know, you're getting the sense that a lot of municipalities are not appreciating the sense I don't know if urgency is the right word, but that something needs to be done because we have this aging society and there's not enough, uh, not enough of a of a foundation for those who are aging to to live the way that we think that they should live with the, the proper infrastructure. Is the response sort of lukewarm because it's almost mind-boggling uh, of a of a challenge to try to undo some of the uh, the infrastructure that we have in place or the design of cities that we have in place? Well, I think that we do need to act and we need to act very fast. And, and with the aging population, I think we need to totally change our mindset that this is not a problem. This is fantastic. The aging population, I would say we need to create a movement of maybe the 60 plus alive, an army of 60 plus, because the older adults are healthier and wealthier and they got knowledge and they got experience and they could be a magnificent resource for our community. They could be tutoring kids in the schools. They could be uh, teaching English to immigrants. They could be uh, organizing activities for older adults. We tend to think that older adults, for example, this morning I was riding my bike and went into a place uh, along Dundas where in the middle of the bridge there is a sign, uh, Senior Safety Zone Begins. First, how, how does it begin in the middle of a bridge? How do the seniors get there? By helicopter? <laughs> right. Second, three blocks later, it ends. 
we're putting all of these stupid signs all over the city, senior safety zones. First, what is a senior? Second, what is a senior safety zone? I mean, in a civilized city, the whole city should be safe for seniors. Maybe we should be, instead of putting up signals, uh, in the, in in the few places that is safe, we should be putting up signs. In the few places that it is not safe, also it's not about seniors. Most seniors don't need any signs. Most seniors don't need any special treatment to cross the streets. People with disabilities do need, regardless of the age. If you are blind and you are 40, if you broke your leg and you are 20. If you have dementia and you are 35, uh, or if you have, or you are 90, or you are 95, but over 85% of the older adults don't have any issues with mobility. So, but it becomes ageist when they keep putting up signs to say, "Oh, the seniors, we need to change the street because because of the no, it's not because of the seniors." So let's think of the seniors is as an asset, not as a liability. It's not about expenses. Also because it's not a huge cost. When people say, oh, the health expenses. Well, the health expenses is relative. Most of the big health expenses is in the last two or three years of the life of a person, regardless if the person lives till 70 or till 90. So when people are living now in Canada till 85, 90, uh, and people retire when they are 60, they have 20, 30, 40 years left. So some, somehow we, we tend to think that when people retire, we cross them out as if they had died, except that they got 20, 30, 40 years left. And they could be magnificent. Our universities, we should have our universities, 25% of their courses should be free for older adults. Older adults are hungry but of knowledge. They want to learn about music and history and gardening and languages and sociology and anthropology and all kinds of things. The universities have classrooms that are empty in the afternoons. They have thousands of people doing masters and PhDs that would be the professors. Uh, they got all of the software to register. So the marginal cost to do the class is almost nothing. For example, the University of Toronto has one course for older adults. This was told to me by the president of the university. And he said, Gil, you are right. Because in that course, we have 1,500 people on the wait list. I almost fainted. I said, what more marketing study do you need? If you have 1,500 people on the wait list, why are you not opening 15 courses for 100 people each on all kinds of topics for these people? You have them there. All you need to do is go up and sign the map. How can you go year after year after year having the 1,500 people on the way list? So those are the kind of mind shifts that, 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 that we need. We need to facilitate. We need to open up our schools to allow the facilities, both external and internal, that if we got winter days and we want people to go in and socialize, play cards. Remember what I was saying about mental health. Mental health is a huge issue, so people need to socialize. So then we need people to be able to go and use the outdoor and indoor facilities. The schools are public facilities. They belong to all of us. So I do think that the older adults uh, could be magnificent assets. And we are not really taking advantage of those assets. And that's 85% of the ones that I'm saying they don't even have any mobility issue. Even the 15% that do have some kind of mobility issue, we need to rethink how to do it. For example, uh, a few months ago, I was in Toyama, Japan, with the mayor of Toyama. 
and he took me to one of the parks, like going here to High Park. And he said, Gil, this park is very safe, it's very nice environment, and we have a program with all older adults that have dementia. And their family members used to keep him in their house. Now they bring him here at 8.30 in the morning, they leave him here, and then they go to work. But here no one takes care of them. They do whatever they want. They wander all over the park, and we put a band with a GPS. So at noon, when the family member comes by to have lunch with them or whatever, if they don't see him close by, they just look in their telephone and they know exactly where the older person with dementia is because they have a GPS. So that is also changing in many places. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, the treatment of dementia, people were keeping people in their houses. People were kind of uh, felt bad, felt shameful that a family member had dementia. They say, oh, I don't want to let them out because they're going to get lost. Don't worry. Most will not get lost. Or if they get lost, they can be found. So it's also changing the, the treatment of that 15% that do have. So the fact that we have not prepared the cities, for the older adults, it's not that we did not know that it was coming. We knew the baby boomers were coming 60 years ago and 50 years and 40, and now it's here, and the cities are not ready. So tell me a little bit about that. How are the cities not ready? The cities are not ready because many, in Toronto, 24% of the streets do not have sidewalks. This is this is, the city? The, the, uh, this is by the city. What about da- data from the city? Okay, and what about I'm t- not just the city, but I'm I'm also interested in the Greater Toronto Hamilton area. Is well, it get more and more challenging the further out you go into the suburb? Well, yes, because a lot of the suburbs are being built around the car, and many people, for example, the, a Canadian doctor has studied the psychological impact of losing the driver's license because of age is similar to when people are told that they have cancer. It's not because they love cars. It's because they love mobility. People want to age in place. They want to continue visiting the same friends and shopping in the same stores and so on. So we need to have mobility. So older adults are going to walk and ride bicycles and use public transit. So we need to have that. That, that, that is a key element that we do not have in the suburbs. Public transit has to be a top priority. And with such low densities, it's going to be impossible to have public transit. We need to realize that mobility and land use are two sides of the same coin. If we don't have density, at least on the main corridors, all of the main corridors along the in all of the suburbs, in Mississauga, in Brandon, in Milton, in Oshawa, in Markham, everywhere, they should allow at least mid-density. So I think it's very urgent that the suburbs, but we need to do things differently, radically. For example, in Burlington, in Burlington, they were they they they, they built the McMaster University, their school of management, and they built the school of management in the middle of a highway. How stupid! This is a public university that was built with public money. How are they building them? The, 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 the mayor of Burlington of many years ago, Rob McIsaac, convinced McMaster to do the School of Management downtown by, by, by Lake Ontario. Magnificent idea. Imagine one or two thousand people plus the workers, professors, cleaners, everybody. It would have, it would have totally revitalized the downtown of Burlington. Instead, somehow they got some land very inexpensive by the highway and they built it there. 
surrounded by warehouses. Why by warehouses? Because that's what you do next to the highways, warehouses. You don't do universities. What is the benefit to Burlington? Nothing. People come in their car, they get off the highway, they go to class, they run the car, they go on. It's bad, bad for everybody. It's bad for the university because who wants to study in the middle of a highway? So it's bad for the, it's bad for Burlington because it's not bringing anything. For example, that is something that should be mandatory. Anything that is public should be building the best possible place. Let me give you an example. The, for the last 10 or 15 years, the government of Ontario is amalgamating schools all over the province. A lot of elementary schools that used to be walk-to schools, all of a sudden they go to a small town that has only three elementary schools and they amalgamate it into one gigantic super school, a super elementary. So the kids, they made a friend, they want to go and play with their friend before they lived within walking distance. Now they need to be driven to their friends because now it's citywide. That doesn't make any sense. Just because all of a sudden the Board of Education says, oh, but we save money because instead of having three principals, we have one. Yeah, but you are messing up the whole community. Before you had a school that could have been a community hub for the whole community. Now you got this gigantic monstrous, monstrous school that is breaking up the whole community. Those are the things that, and we are still doing it. The University of McMaster, now in Windsor, in Windsor is deciding where to build a, a, a hospital. They wanna build it in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, if it's in the middle of the city, it's gonna revitalize all, all, all of Windsor. And people are, have a, a family member that is sick, you can go and go back to work and do short visits and the hotels and everything around there. But now is everybody's gonna be dependent on a car to go to that hospital. No, so er, that hospital is public. That McMaster University is public. Those schools that I'm talking about, elementary schools are public. We should pass a law that everything that is public should be built in the best possible place we need to we need to think i invite the listeners to think is how do we want to live if, if politicians ask a little bit more and develop with with the citizens how do we want to live and we have a shared vision of how do we want to live a lot of the decisions are going to be a lot easier if, if our vision is that children should be able to walk to school then we know that we're going to have to have small schools with small catchment area to be able to walk because in large schools they're not going to be able to do it so you, when you, we are going to grow by 50 yeah. percent the population in the next 30 years my god there should be a huge sense of urgency well on that and just this is my last question um are you optimistic that we can address this sense of urgency given all the challenges you've identified, um, a lot of the ideas you've identified, all the the ways that the groups need to work together. Um, how do you feel? Are you sort of a, a glass half empty or half full? Well, it, it's, it's complicated because sometimes when you still see that the mayor of Toronto comes out and says that we are gonna invest almost $2 billion moving the gardener, because if we turn down the gardener and we rebuild it 100 meters to the north, we're going to save two minutes to 3% of the commuters. Two minutes to three, and that is best case scenario. My God, we're going to invest $2 billion on that? Uh, and when we have one out, of four, one out of four children in the city living in poverty, when we got over 100,000 people in the wait list of housing, when we have some challenges, it, it, it's really concerning. When people are fighting in Scarborough doing a $4 billion one-stop subway, $4 billion is about $4,000 per household. 
It's $1,300 for every man, woman, and child in Toronto. It's a lot, lot, lot of money. And not only a lot of money, but for the worst, for, for a worst project. Because on top of it, if you say, okay, we're going to pay, pay a lot of money, but it's going to be the best option. No, we're going to pay a lot of money, and it's a worst option. Then I see the half-empty glass. On the other hand, I see a lot of young people that are very, are, are really being activists around climate change and, and around education and public health and all of this. So then I become a little bit more optimistic. In the U.S. for decades, they couldn't even talk about the, the Rifle Association, the NRA, and all of a sudden they killed some students in Florida. The students create a movement and now they have the NRA against the wall. A 16-year-old girl in Sweden starts doing uh, striking after school on Fridays, and a few weeks ago, she she called for a general strike in schools around the world, and over a thousand in a thousand cities, the schools went out on strike on a Friday. You know, the older adults. The baby boomers, they were the hippies of the 60s and 70s. They were people that were very generous. They were white people marching for racial equality. They were men marching for gender equality. So maybe we need to tap into that little activist that the boomers had in the 60s and 70s and say, hey, look, all of us, we want to live a better world for our children, our grandchildren, and we're moving in the wrong direction. So we... Also, the older adults vote, so the politicians eventually listen to the older adults because they vote. So maybe we should create a movement of those older adults and say, look, it's not about nimbism. It's not about just some short-term issues. Uh, but but then but then we should for example things like such as the subsidies the reality is that the subsidies for seniors don't make any sense in 2019 we should be smarter we should subsidize him by need not by age why are we going to subsidize a 70 year old millionaire just because he or she is 70 and not a 40 year old single mom or dad because he or she is 40 so we need to be a lot smarter. It's not about subsidizing by age. Also, because the older adults, when we began the senior subsidies 50 years ago, they were very poor. The, the level of poverty in Canada was around 14%. The older adults was almost 30, so more than twice. Today is the opposite. The older adults is almost half the poverty of the national average, So, which is a major... Um, a major success story in only two generations went from being very poor the older adults to being much wealthier than the average population. So, and also because when we, for example, we're going to subsidize public transit, 20%. The person that is wealthy, 20% doesn't make any difference. The person that is poor, 20% is not enough. So instead of subsidizing every older adult with 20% on transit, no, let's see which are the ones that actually need it, and let's give them 100% or 90%. So let's give a big subsidy to the ones that actually need it, and let's don't give any to the people that don't need it. I mean, also because when there were very few older people, then maybe 90% of the population could subsidize 10%. But now that it became not 10%, but it was 15, 20, 25, and it's going to be 30%, we cannot be subsidizing 30% of the population. So those are some of the things that we also need to have the, the, the guts, the vision. And I think you need both vision, but you also need guts to, guts to do 
what is right. It's not only about doing things right, but it's also even more important. It's about doing the right things. Well, you've certainly, certainly, uh, just sitting here and listening to you, it just spills out the the passion and the ideas. And I'm sure that anybody listening to this, especially the older generation who wants to start a movement, certainly listen to this podcast maybe once or twice to get inspired. And um, I think everything that you've said is certainly going to resonate more and more as the population ages. And I think this idea about a movement of some sort, hopefully will will take hold because as you've identified, there is an urgency to uh, accommodate an older, an aging population. And it's an aging population that can live happier and healthier and better quality of life. And it's going to be a win-win for everybody. Everyone listening, sooner or later, is going to be an older adult. And right now, they might be an older adult or their parents or their grandparents. But all of us are going to get there. And the other thing, one last comment that I want to make is that we need to benchmark with the best in the world. Because some people say, oh, but we are good. Yeah, maybe that is one of the big problems. When people are, when cities are good, they're more reluctant to change. No, we need to be as good as anybody else. In Canada, there is no city that should not be as good as anybody. If, if I'm a city, if I'm whatever, Burlington, I should be saying, okay, I'm a city of 200,000 people with this income level, this weather, and so on. Which are the best cities in the world with 200,000 people with similar income and similar climate and so on? Or Toronto? Toronto should not be saying, oh, I'm going to be competing with Mississauga. No, Toronto's competing with Copenhagen and with Seattle. and with So all of the cities in Canada, any city in Canada, if you want to do a list of cities that are worse than you, in 10 minutes, you will do a list of 500 cities. But if you compare yourself with cities that are worse, eventually you're going to look like those. No, we, every city, regardless of the size, uh, we need to start thinking, okay, cities of similar conditions, which are the best in quality of air? Which ones are the best in level of happiness? Which ones are the, where are the happier older adults? Where are they living happier and healthier? Where, which ones have the least index of dementia? Or even the ones that have dementia that are living better with dementia. Which are the best, the most walkable? Which one have the best public transit? Which one has the best of everything? So, so th- those are the ones. The, 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 so there is no excuse for for Canada not to be leading in any of these cities. And and, and I think this is something fascinating. And we should turn the living longer from a negative perspective to something that is is magnificent. It's a joy to go to the park and sometimes see three and four generations sitting together and enjoying life. That's a great way. That should be the normal, not the exception. Very good way to end it, uh, this podcast. Gil, thanks so much for your time. Lots, uh, there's a lot that you've mentioned and a lot to think about. So thanks again. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.